0: Welcome to the Exponential Minds podcast. The research development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators in the Exponential Minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level.
1: Hi there and welcome to the next episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist and foresight practitioner that helps my clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future to help them with strategic planning and risk anticipation Today and I'm incredibly excited with today's episode. And I'm interviewing someone that I've wanted to speak to for for a very long time, Dr. Wendy Schultz. Dr. Schultz is an academically trained futurist with over 40 years of global foresight practice. She's designed futures research projects for NGOs, government agencies and businesses and recently uh, completed with her colleagues at same Consulting four global scenarios and multiple regional scenarios on the futures of research, and innovation in a post-COVID world, and we're gonna need that for sure. Wendy specializes in participatory uh, futures workshops, most recently online for the ILO and the International Institute of Islamic Thought. Other examples include face-to-face workshops offering foresight training in Kuala Lumpur in Istanbul, uh, a temporary futures institute, uh, a museum of contemporary art in, in Antwerp, in Cairo for the ILO, for Africa knows in Arusha, Tanzania that's an amazing place, Uh, with the Geneva Center for Security Policy in Bangkok, New York and Geneva, and in Budapest for Vodafone. Wendy teaches Future Studies in the Master's Programme in Strategic Foresight at the University of Houston, is a Fellow of the Geneva Center for Security Policy, a Senior Fellow of the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies, a member of the APF, and a Fellow of the World Future Studies Federation. She's also a Director of Infinite Futures and a futures puzzle master at jigsaw foresight. Woo! I'm I'm always hugely excited to speak to people who've got such a depth of experience. I'm I'm very honoured to have you here today, Wendy. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here and it's delightful to be able to actually uh, have a conversation with you after our exchanges on Twitter for all these years.
1: Yeah, Twitter, you know, the the, the enablement of, of, of the beginning of modern relationships uh, and, and professional relationships, I mean, and and that's uh, it, it's a really interesting place to be and a little twisted uh, sometimes as well, but not in the conversations that we have. Uh, as I normally do with podcasts, I always ask uh, guests to really tell us, you know, their journey of how they've come to, you know, get into the foresight practice that they're in today. So, so you know, take us back as far as you want, Wendy, um, and take us on a journey of how you've uh, progressed in your career to date.
0: Okay. Set the time machine for 50 years ago. <laughs> I, was, I, I had always been interested in theatre, but also always interested in innovation. And when I went to my undergraduate school, um, Michigan State University, but more particularly this rather eccentric um, sort of little liberal arts college within the giant uh, campus of Michigan State called Justin Morrill College, which actually was modeled after the, um, the Oxford and Cambridge colleges. So it was residential, and it let you design your own... Uh, major. Uh, you could take normal majors if you wanted to, but you could design your own. So that's where people get into trouble. <laughs> because I went in thinking, all right, so what's a combination of of theatre? And, and what I mean is technical production theatre, not acting, sure. I was actually interested in the backstage stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, what's a combination of theatre and technological innovation? Ooh, must be that I'm really interested in television and radio production. Okay, that's interesting. And the very first related course I took on uh, the TV and radio lab, that, well, the TV production lab in Justin Moore College was run by this fantastic uh, professor named John Reed who made us read McLuhan's Understanding Media. Right. And everybody else was sort of really in it for you know, camera and production and kind of hit McLuhan and went, what is this? And I hit McLuhan and went, this is awesome and took a hard you know turn and went into the exploration of innovation technology and its impact on society culture and people right and ended up building a completely unmarketable uh generalist major that i ended up calling philosophy technology and social change and this was before, um, so, what are they called now? Society, technology, and change majors existed. Right. And so there I was graduating with that and thinking, I've got to go to grad school because literally no one's going to hire me for a job. <laughs> so, hmm. And the last year that I was working on my um, undergraduate coursework, I would buy books that looked interesting. and turn them over and you know where, where books normally have on the back a little a few blurbs from the publisher and some reviews and they also have a keyword to help booksellers figure out where to put them on their bookshelves and they'll say things like history or biography and I started seeing future studies. I thought future studies that sounds like it's a thing it sounds like it might be an academic thing so I went looking for futures grad degrees and found a few and the two that sounded most interesting were in The University of Houston, the Masters in Foresight. Yeah. But it was just a Masters, and I kind of didn't want to live in Houston. And the other one was a PhD program and a Masters program in Hawaii, (laughs) Houston, Hawaii. Right. A little background: at the six years that I lived in East Lansing, going to school at Michigan State, and then doing some other things. We had two of the worst blizzards in a century. So yeah, that was like a no brainer. I was like, yeah, awesome. The other upside of that, of course, was that it meant that essentially I did my graduate work with fantastic uh, fellow graduate students and uh, under the tutelage of Jim Dater, who has got to be one of the most provocative and um, global, wide ranging thinkers on the planet. So right. it was a fantastic experience.
1: Yeah, and data's for futures as well is is like the bastion it's like the, the foundational piece of so much work that I personally do and a lot of people out there being able to frame, you know, where we are today, right? And where we're headed in a way.
0: Okay, so there's actually a story behind that and I I this is the article I have got to get written soonest. There used to be more futures. Oh and when i was a graduate student it was it was five futures and then we actually expanded it to six with one uh, fellow grad student's research work and those archetypes because that's what they are in uh were were defined by more than just the shape of change so what Jim did over the years to create the Four Futures, as far as I can tell, is he went from a set of archetypes that had been compiled by by looking at the families of images of the future that people were writing about and forecasting out there in the futures literature and focused it and honed it down to a more minimalist set that highlights the shape of change, right? Yeah. Is change, you know, is the change curve collapsing? Is it rising exponentially? Is it kind of going into um, some sort of transformational dynamic, etc.? So, and and they're very useful and they're used widely and everything else, but there's an interesting amount of kind of nuance that gets lost in the transition from the original five or six, depending on how you look, look at it to this set of four. So it's what's what's interesting to me having watched the, over literally 50 years, having watched the evolution of future studies and futures thinking, is watching how the community refines and evolves concepts and tools in I think what's been an ever more successful attempt to make the field more accessible and more useful. In a practical sense, so that's the great news, right? I, yeah. We have a we have a long way to go, I think, with our PR. There are still an awful lot of people who say you're a futurist. What's that?
1: Yeah, or 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 people start talking to you about you know their ideas of the future, and suddenly you get into like science fiction, what, which is all super rad and 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 really valid. But it's really interesting how you're talking about um, the accessibility and the usability of something that I've been struggling with over the last couple of years. I started to, you know, everything from, like, the Futures Cone. I interviewed uh, Dr. Joseph Voros about, you know, the addition of preposterous futures. And that's going to be as part of this series as well. So go and check out that interview as well. And, um, you know, all of these different frameworks. And it's they're, they're all quite complex. And that you have to work through them. And you have to have patience. And it, it's almost like a philosophical and a practical practice of really understanding where we could go and the c suite and executives generally don't have patience for that amount of, of 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 like determined discipline in a way so how do you how do you boil that down into you know a practice that helps a company you know a trillion dollar company or a government you know, really slip that idea of futures literacy and, you know, a foresight process into, you know, policies, research or or product roadmap or whatever, right?
0: Mm. Interestingly enough, that was basically what I was writing about in my dissertation, which is entitled Futures Fluency, Explorations in Leadership, Vision and Creativity, and And I wish someone would burn because, of course, once you finish (laughs) writing it, you think, oh, wow, that was really, I could have done it so much better. Sure. But the basic idea was the fact that just as it's not just great men, quote unquote, who are leaders, it's leadership is an innate skill that can be nurtured and uh, practiced and refined. So is futures thinking. Right. And getting to the point of... Again, what I prefer to think of as futures fluency, because literacy is more about the mechanics. Fluency is actually having a more sophisticated gut-level understanding of how you can interconnect and layer meaning and nuance when looking at images of the future that exist out in the world, which is a part of future studies that I think is often not... um, not emphasized enough. We spend a lot of time as futurists, especially as consulting futurists, in assisting people who want to build images of the future, either scenarios for strategic work or visions for of desirable futures for work in terms of leadership and, and team building. And the actual fact is there are a huge we, we are awash in images of the future. Right. We are swimming through images of the future that have been built up by layer and layer across all of the cultures in which we exist. So the uh, concept of fluency is about not only being able to understand your own sense of what the future could, might, should be, but also to understand tools that help you expand that sense. And tools that help you recognize and analyze and connect to the images of the future that are also already out there. So I'm not quite sure where I was going with this conversation. But <laughs> yeah, that's that is one of the interesting parts about future sure. studies. Of course, you start off on one thread and you can yeah. go an infinite number of places uh, with any of these ideas. So yeah. what is let me let me get back to your question about accessibility in the C-suite, because actually the projects that I have been working on most recently have to do with building foresight capability and a foresight culture within organizations. And recognizing my own limitations, I'm partnering with this uh, fantastic um, facilitator and thought leader named Victoria Ward, whose expertise is more in organizational narrative and culture and organizational storytelling and um, facilitation and curation of conversations. And we're trying to merge the two. And you'll have noticed that the last, the very last bit of my bio said something about being the futures puzzle meister for Jigsaw Foresight. Right. And that's what Jigsaw Foresight is. It's an applied practice almost in kind of concierge team and culture building and foresight so working over the long term with organizations to help them build up resources that they can tap for engaging in foresight in different ways
1: yeah and, 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 and no no sorry wendy please carol
0: i was gonna say and, and part of that interestingly is to look at some of these great new tools and methods and, and concepts that people have been coming up with. Really, this is a golden age of futures thinking and experimentation in so many ways. And and sort of saying, how can we introduce some of these, um, these easy to digest concepts or frameworks or methods and show how they link together, which is the jigsaw part of it, right. and layer to create step-by-step in an, in in a sort of more accessible, more digestible way, a very sophisticated and nuanced uh, view of the future, or view of the futures.
1: And I guess you know, reaching a certain level of capability around that is is when you know a, you know applied foresight practitioners like yourself, myself, and other people I've mentioned can step away, and the organization can use it as well, right?
0: Exactly. I- so so one of the things that I I guess I would say is that I work to make myself obsolete.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, are you finding that that's possible? I'm, I'm finding that over the past couple of years, I've, I've worked with two very large organizations, two incredibly smart women that, are incre- that, that have got a huge amount of qualifications, you know, master's degree level of, um, education and uh, applied knowledge within the organizations. One's a big tech company, one's a very large engineering company. And it seems like, you know, there's a period of time of coaching and mentorship as well as teaching, you know, the frameworks and helping them work out how that goes into the practice within their company. And when you step away, I, I almost feel like, you know, I, it, it, my heart's broken a little bit. You know, they've broken <laughs> up with me. But it's also incredibly fulfilling to have a conversation. And they're like, yeah, I'm now a uh, futurist uh, in residence for this particular part of this large organization and we're running with all of this, this work. Right. So so it's interesting, right, to, to have this, you know, the planned obsolescence of, of the futurist in, in terms of the consultant. And I guess that's more healthy than, you know, what management consultancy wants, which is like an, a direct um, need and addiction to having you on site to, you know, soothe the, the pains of the C-suite, right?
0: Yes, exactly. Well, and, and it's quite frankly, it's something that the larger global futures community is working towards. And Peter Bishop um, and his initiative of Teach the Future, which has caught on with great enthusiasm all over the world to get futures curriculum resources in the hands of teachers from at every level of education from kindergarten through college. Right to essentially work towards a goal of making sure that everyone on the planet is a futurist is fantastic and is exactly what the community needs. So there are initiatives like that um, all over The, the Millennium Project, to some extent, does the same thing, you know, making sure that that there are futures initiatives that are supported in countries all over the world so that we don't have the futures practice yeah be overwhelmed by you know oecd type g20 type management consulting futurists which is not to say that some of those people don't do great work right they do but an awful lot of it de facto is focused on maintaining the current economic system that is basically running at high speed into planetary system limits.
1: Right. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, we're going to tell you the future. And by the way, here's all the technology and process and people that you need to do that. And hey, we can we can provide all of that. And suddenly it's a hundred and forty million dollar project that guarantees or certainly, you know, soft guarantees to put points on your stock price. And it's that's not really futures work. <laughs> right? right. And
0: that and that has no sense of accountability or responsibility built in right. for the sorts of impacts that recommendations and changes might create.
1: Right. I mean, I have to put my hand up. I'm a recovering management consultant and also a recovering advertising strategist as well, right? So I've been in that world of, you know, you can have a big futures vision, but ultimately you're still selling, you know, nuts and bolts of business in a way. I want to sort of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about, you know, we talked about tools and techniques. And, and last year I, I, um, I, I jumped into um, attending one of your workshops and you were, um, it's the first time I ever used Miro, so thank you for that. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> I actually use that now in my practice and you know, I've done some big sort of collaborative sessions and it's it's really cool once you work it out. Um, but you you were you were teaching the Manoa approach and I think you had something like 50 people online, you know, and you, you did this big collaborative thing. Can, can you take us a little bit through that and maybe mention some other tools that, that you use um, for your work?
0: Okay, certainly. Um... Right. Well, one of the one of the starting points for all futures work, and it was in fact the starting point for that workshop, is to first identify what's changing. Right. So to, to hone your awareness of change and say, what is it that's new and novel and weird that's going on around me? What are some of the big trends that are heading towards being conditioned? So wow, if I haven't been paying attention to them, I should be, because they're going to be part of daily life right. pretty soon. But especially tapping into this idea of emerging changes, evolving changes and identifying those, and then asking the next question related to what I just said about accountability, which is what will be the impacts? Right. So emerging change connected to impact cascades, a very simple idea that, uh, that once a startling change happens, it immediately generates some observable changes in our daily life or how we view the world. Right. And those in turn, those impacts become embedded enough that they then also generate change. So the idea that for example, the pandemic locked us all down in various ways which means that this went from being my visiting you and recording this maybe in your office studio to being something that we do on zoom yeah to zoom going from a word that denotes a proprietary platform to being a generic way of communicating kind of like kleenex you know uh is trademark but it also just means tissues um the fact that because of that there are the impact cascades of people accepting the fact that you have to look great from sort of the waist up, but you can be wearing your pajama bottoms while you're in that <laughs> meeting with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company to people marketing towards that, right? right. Oh, people need green screens. I will make a small detachable green screen that you could put on the back of your office chair, Right. I right? see those markets. So we so so what you get are these ripples and cascades of impacts. And there is a fantastic futures tool that takes advantage of that. Um, I just mentioned the Millennium Project. This tool was developed by Dr. Jerome Glenn, who is the director of the Millennium Project back when he was, I think, a graduate student at Antioch College um, called the Futures Wheel. Right. And it basically says, take an emerging change. Assume that this emerging change that you might only see weak signals of right now, grow it. Say it's five or or so years in the future and so this emerging change is now common and it's part of everyday life. What would be some immediate impacts of that? Right. Okay, then look at each of those immediate impacts and say, all right, those have gone from being sort of initial impacts to being again, fully, uh, fully matured changes, they themselves are part of everyday life. And so in note that you were working forward in time. So the initial change that you focused on, you've matured it, so it's about five years from now, those next impacts may have played out in the next five or 10 years, then you look at them and say, they're, they are now creating changes, where will their impacts arise? and that's another 5 or 10 years out so you're you're by the time you get to the end of the impact cascades and by the time you get to the outer circle of your mapped futures wheels all of these impact cascades you're you know 15 20 25 30 years in the future or more right so what the manoa scenario building approach did um, Based, based on essentially, when I was a graduate student, I was looking around going, I have to write scenarios. How do people who write scenarios do that? And at that point, the future studies field was filled with a lot of what I'd call genius forecasters, yes. of which Jim Dater was one. Yep. And I basically talked to a bunch of them and said, what is going on in your head when you come up with these scenarios? And generally speaking, what they said was, well, I've, I've spotted two or three or four Uh, changes that no one is paying attention to that I think are going to have a lot of impacts. And I think through what the impacts will be. And then I sort of think about the fact that none of them are happening in silos. They're not hermetically sealed away from each other. They're all interconnecting. So what's the world going to look like where all of these changes and their impacts have played out? And that is Manoa scenario building in a nutshell. So the basic instructions are take at least three emerging changes from different sectors from different steep categories so don't have three social changes or three economic changes or three technological changes have an environmental change a political change and a technological innovation or an economic change a social change etc take them one by one work out the futures wheels and the impact cascades And then look at those three or four or five futures wheels and say, all right, these things are going to interconnect. And at that point you invoke systems thinking and start saying, how will some of these impacts influence each other, either um, by amplifying the change or by constraining the change. And you start building this really interesting ecology of change. And the one rule is be specific. So don't tell me that iPads will change education. Tell me how. Does that mean students won't need textbooks anymore? What's going to be the difference? So what you get are these very rich pictures that are systemic of the impacts of multiple changes generating uh, even more changes and basically creating a lot of interesting turbulence and system shifts. And then you stand back and say, given all of that, what does that future look like? So it's a it's more organic way of building scenarios. And it is also, I think, more sympathetic to the theoretical notions of chaos and complex adaptive systems that that people are working with more and more. Um, and you get a lot of really interesting details. And also quite frankly, it's fun because futures wheels are fun. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, and it also tends to drive more extreme stories about the future
1: it, right? it, yeah it, it, it's it's really interesting like talking about this as well I mean when we're talking about turbulence system shift you know I, I studied chaos theory and complexity systems I did a I did a bachelor of science at Bournemouth University in applied psychology computing and I decided to do AI and chaos complexity and all that cool stuff right I guess that was 20 25 26 years ago that was the beginning of me really getting into this in a way right but those extreme stories are something that that I I've, I've been working in but I've almost felt bad to do it in a way because everyone that you hear out in the foresight futures world is like we have to build these positive futures but I always say that the future is fairly inconvenient as well right
0: right but that that's a those are okay th- those are two different exercises so uh one of my other uh colleagues uh clem bezold at the institute for alternative futures used to say that scenarios are futures for the head right they're exploratory they're thought experiments they are what what are all the things that could happen from as joe would say the preposterous to the uh through the possible to the probable and i'll Leave out the whole discussion about plausibility, which I have found increasingly irritating, uh, because preposterous should have been assumed. Joe shouldn't have had to even right. build that in, and quite frankly, the the students, all all the the people that come from the school of data, as it were, h- had ingrained in our thinking, uh, Dater's initial law of futures, which is any useful idea about the future should seem to be ridiculous. Right. Which is the notion of hit people with something pre- preposterous and provocative to jar their thinking all of its kind of uh straight tracks of tomorrow will be a lot like today so the um wow I completely lost track of where we were going there for a second
1: yeah no it, it so it, uh, I was I was really sort of starting to dig into that sort of looking at the turbulence and complex systems you know the extreme scenarios as well right and uh, the idea, those those ridiculous futures or the preposterous and provocative, right? And I'm just thinking about, you know, oh, sorry, Wendy.
0: Sorry, I got it again. Sorry. Okay.
1: We, we, this
0: is a fascinating conversation. Yeah. well done. Um, right, where I was going with that was, so scenarios are exploratory. Yeah. Visions and desired futures, that is a, an entirely different... Those aren't scenarios. Visions are not scenarios. Visions, as Clem finished, the other half of the scenarios are futures for the head. Visions are futures for the heart. Visions are value clarification exercises. They're about articulating your individual values, finding shared values across, hopefully a diverse community, expressing that as a, a possible preferred future and then working towards it. Now, there have been all kinds of critiques of that, of that approach in its most simplistic kind of there's a goal, there's the current state, there's a gap, we take action. How very, you know, practical and instrumental is that? A lot of the chaos and complexity people rightly critique that simplest formulation of that approach but in the true spirit of chaos and complexity what preferred or desirable futures do is they align people in align conversations right so that the complex adaptive system that we all are as human beings can have sort of a general an attractor that we're heading towards, right? A right. pattern that we want to try and fall into. And so it's, it isn't simple and straightforward, but it is something that where we can find alignment, harmonic resonance, however you want to put it, right? In, in the actions we're taking and, and in our worldviews and how we're moving forward. But they're two very different things. And I think you need to do both. Right. It's not a matter of, oh, we do only desirable futures or, oh, we do only um, exploratory futures or, oh, we focus on the negatives to scare people so they'll start changing.
1: Right. It's, it's almost like the second one where it's like visions and desired futures. Is It's almost like it it, it could be part of the toolkit of a politician, right? Whereas whereas the, the, the first one where we start to think about, you know, looking at the change and really... Um, Digging deep down into, you know, the, the immediate impacts and those cascades is something that's sort of a little bit more grounded in that futures work.
0: Except if politicians are politically canny, they would sit down and work out potential impact cascades of decisions they're making, and then they would be less likely to be surprised in the future by the negative outcomes that in it uh, inevitably arise. The other point I need to emphasize is it gets back to this issue of futures fluency and the fact that we are awash in images of the future. Politicians are innate uh, producers of desirable futures and, and visions. That's what they do. So part of this issue of not only learning to generate images of the future, whether scenarios or visions, but learning to inventory the ones that exist is the recognition that literally everything around us is probably connected to an image of the future but certainly all politicians are selling an image of a preferred future that's what political promises are all advertising is selling an image of a preferred future use our product and x wonderful things will happen so and and that's quite frankly as consultants one of the things that we have to understand that we are competing against so when you create scenarios you are competing against a deep cultural backlog of images of the future and the current both pop culture and high culture images of the future and political culture images of the future that are being promoted so it's it's a Again, it's easier to achieve futures literacy than it is to achieve futures fluency, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is true of language as well, right? Yeah.
1: So, And th- this was actually something, so I, I did a, a keynote on, you know, futures of, of, you know, thinking about urbanization and cities and whatever to a city in, in the United States in Ohio. And uh, when it got down to the Q&A and, you know, obviously... My, my presentation was about building like cities for humans, not cities for cars and transportation, and right. you know, purely for business, like human-centered design, all that good stuff. And uh, one of the uh, one of the councillors. Who will remain unnamed? He 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 stepped up and he was like, you know, you know, I yeah, you know, I'm really on board with this and the idea of blue zones and all this. And and then he said, you know, back in 1998 when we were designing this district, which has turned out to be you know really useful, but you know they turned down the idea of having agricultural systems built into the you know the the, the places that we were architecting because it was too progressive. Quote, and and then it's like what you're saying about this innate producer of desirable futures, but ultimately that the, these, these councillors or politicians, they're ultimately influenceable, right? So, you know, and we can see that with lobbying groups and, you know, the people, you know, funding their, their re-election campaigns or their initial election, everyone's buying that influence so that they can al- almost kill the idea of, of actually having this future's fluency that does step into a better world overall with a longer view future right
0: Uh, oh but wait but but we have to be careful about the concept of a better world right because from those politicians point of view or the city councillors point of view they were still promoting what they thought would be a better world to specific people right you know their constituency the issue of whether of, of how you judge better, and from whose perspective you are, you are looking to judge better is one of the core components of a truly critical futures uh, practice, right? Is this understanding that every time someone starts talking about a vision of a desired future or better future, you instantly must first ask whose desires and whose values are driving the judgment, the evaluation of better or not. And that's exactly why, and and again, thank heavens we live in this interesting golden age of futures work where really, the younger generation are running with some of the threads that go back fairly deeply in critical future studies on colonization and decolonization of the future and saying, yes, exactly. We have to decolonize futures practice. We have to localize it. We have to empower people all over the world, which gets us back to futures literacy, futures fluency, teach the future and all of that. So from a futures perspective, this is a very exciting era which is a good thing because from the perspective of the planet this is a very scary era
1: yeah and and, i mean we're we're, i think modern society is ultimately a a a product of you know thousands of years of, of conflict and taxes and boundaries and This idea, like, yeah, over the last two to three years, I've really been looking at what people have been doing, like Monica Bilskite, I chatted to on the podcast a couple of seasons back, she's doing really interesting things about Protopia, and Protopia was an idea that was first purported by, you know, Kevin Kelly, you know, those slight changes every year towards a better world, and what we need to do, and the decolonization of... You no, why are the systems built the way that they are? You know, why, Why? you know, why were there people making sure that uh, light bulbs had a limited lifespan when they absolutely could have worked forever, right? You know, it's like these kinds of weird, weird, weird obsolescence. Again, you know, second time we, we've chatted about obsolescence here as well. So it's interesting when you talk about that, you know, whose, whose desires and values are driving the, the judgment of of the future, I think, is a really important distinction to to understand.
0: And and the embedded rules of the system. I'm I'm working with a group right now help, to help facilitate some conversation to look at the underlying rules of the structure, which is of of, of of many of the big like global sort of structures systems in the world. You know, like the energy system and the food system and right. the health system and all that. And um and to look at the the strength and power of the the legacy structures and the legacy rules that underpin them, in the sense, in Danella Meadows' sense of, if you want to uh, if you want to exert leverage over a system, you have to. You, the, the most powerful way to do it is to dig down to the level of the rules and the information that are structuring the system, and that question of how we change some of the um, innate inbuilt rules in some of these big systems is is a fascinating question and it's a really tough challenge i mean it is one of the great wicked problems basically because these systems perpetuate themselves and so now that we have hit the point after 50 years of various scientists and a lot of futurists saying you know there's going to be this slight problem with planetary system limits climate change and environmental, Diversity. Um, now we finally hit the point where people are literally standing up and saying, You know we have ten years right. <laughs> so we have ten years to make these massive cultural and systemic rule shifts. Oh uh, yeah, how's that gonna happen? <laughs>
1: yeah. So across bi- me- across billions of peoples and and their beliefs across hundreds of countries, exactly.
0: and the way exactly. that
1: they're run and and across and embedded
0: yeah. power structures right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and this is what we're fighting in a way, right? I mean, you, I mean, you, 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 you mentioned you uh, post-normal policy in, in your in your bio. Is this is this kind of what we're talking about about right now? You know, trying to work out you know a route out of the situation that we find ourselves in.
0: Yeah, wow, it's hard to sum up post-normal policy in a nutshell, and so I would direct people to the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies website. And more importantly, to two key articles, one by uh, Ravitz and Funtowicz, and I will provide you with links and spelling on sure, that later, on post-normal science, right. where they basically said, this is, we are living in times of, of, of enhanced turbulence. So it's it's sort of tapping on what some people call um, the context of a VUCA context, volatile, uncertain, yeah, uh, complex and ambiguous, chaotic yeah. and ambiguous, That's right. yeah. I'll never yeah. remember. Okay, <laughs> so, um, and it's, and, and uh, Zia Sardar, who is a noted uh, author and futurist, took a look at that and went, yes. And in the wider context, what we are looking at are, are post-normal times. It's not just post-normal science. Our era is going through uh, a post-normal period where things are are highly turbulent, and it is harder to... um, Well, sorry, colleagues in in CPPFS, I I was not prepared to do the presentation on (laughs) post-normality this afternoon. Um, Essentially, yes, things are me more chaotic more turbulent and generally speaking more unexpected so business as usual never was a uh an adaptive long-term approach to anything because any system loses its fitness for purpose over time right given an increasingly complex chaotic, dynamic environment, um, which is, speaking of futures tools and conceptual frameworks, which is basically the underlying point of Bill Sharp's Three Horizons framework, right? Right. The first horizon of managerial thinking focused on stability has built into it assumptions about how the world works and those assumptions lose their fitness over time in a dynamic environment of change. So what we are doing in um the center for Postnormal policy and future study is trying to think through how we think about chaos the unexpected um, what's beyond black swans what people are assuming and how to how to dig into those assumptions and shift perspectives in interesting ways so that we can potentially deal with certain kinds of, um, I uh, to put it in more familiar terms, a certain uh, a, a future of where, where there is a lot of tipping point shifts, a lot of tipping point shifts are emerging. Um, and so part of it is to try and get people out of another great phrase, their manufactured normalcy field, where we start Assuming that this is that that because we have gotten used to changed conditions, whether they are good or bad, that they therefore must be normal, and we will stop thinking about them or, or working against them, and that that essentially is part of the um, part of the underlying thinking behind the Twitter list that that you and I both regularly contribute to, <laughs> which is the idea of pandemic artifacts. And that in some ways, at the point where people are commercializing various products and services as part of the pandemic era, we have kind of normalized pand- the pandemic lifestyle, right? And, or or we are attempting to normalize the lockdown lifestyle. And so you get these interesting, um, actual artistic artifacts, artistic uh, Creations that sort of sum up what life in lockdown and life under pandemic is like, for good or bad. But you also literally get new commercial products and services that are that are sort of focused specifically on this this weird um, this weird moment in time that we're in that we're all hoping doesn't last forever. Not to say that I think we're going to return to normal, whatever that is, but we are going to ev- evolve into some other situation that is post-pandemic or post-acute pandemic and maybe get to the point where it's merely managed pandemic okay. and, and, it, and the world will be different. And we're already beginning to see some of that. The fact that the economy in the U.S., a lot of people have been writing about this in the last week or so, is restructuring itself in ways that are kind of surprising some of our economic leaders, Right?
1: I, I like to talk about this as well. And I'm really glad you brought up the pandemic artifacts. And when, when I find something really weird, I sort of like tag you and put <laughs> hashtag pandemic. Because I really, uh, my, my sort of, <laughs> my curiosity is, is sort of ignited by these kinds of things as well. And the spec future stuff and whatever. And, and I just really like feeding that that body of, of thought and work. There's been so many weird things. I almost think that all of this is building a a, pre, a pre-pandemic view of the world. Because I, I, you know, I like to say, you know, we're we're now in a cycle of probably once in, once a decade, once in a decade sort of pandemics as well, uh, which which ultimately upsets a lot of people. Um, but you know, again, the future is is, is quite inconvenient. I mean, the, the pandemic artifacts uh, that that particular exercise was a, you know, and, and you know, if you're a listener, go hashtag pandemic artifacts, and you can go and see all of these weird and wonderful things, everything from like backpacks. Um, with breathing apparatus for babies to live in, all the way through to really just normal life kind of approaches that are as sort of, at this point, innocuous like like wearing a mask, right?
0: Right. Or I'm looking at one right now. Romanian cobbler keeps people apart with size 75 shoes. <laughs> so, you know, the clown shoe approach, the um, making masks for Barbie dolls... Uh, what are some other good ones uh, green traffic lights installed to assist with physical distancing at the Rosenborg castle in Copenhagen for tourism management. Right. Uh, yeah, it was just a, an absolutely um, wonderful kind of growing list that a, a very generous community keeps growing, keeps evolving um, for those of us that are interested in the idea. And and it has a variety of, um, oh, the other one I like is the vaccinistas, Pfizer files, pandemic artifacts of I'm team Pfizer, I'm team right. Moderna and it's on right. t-shirts, right? So the, the vaccine elitism is being translated into products, right? So it's, um, it I think again, this gets back to my early fascination with change Does weird things to people and culture and it's always going to be fascinating to watch, even when we are ourselves in the middle of it and experiencing both the upsides and downsides.
1: Yeah, and I think I think it's almost interesting as well when we're thinking about you know whether you're looking at the the Manoa method and you start to go down and, and then five to ten years you know and maybe just saying yeah but what if it was really weird and what it, what's the weirdness that can exist in the futures as well and I kind of love that as well because it's you know weirdness is deeply cultural countercultural sort of phenomenon in a way and it's like you know when someone says hey I'm crazy or you know hey I'm a bit of a weirdo you know you, you don't really get that. But there, there are people that do point out and say, "Yeah, they're a bit strange, or <laughs> they're a bit weird." Actually,
0: one of my favorite, again, and these are this this goes to my um, love of collecting foresight tools and exercises, both as a researcher and as a facilitator. Short, sharp shocks, um, and that that gets back to our issue of accessibility and, and digestibility of some of these futures methods. Rather than starting off with like we're going to build scenarios via morphological analysis and it'll take a team of 25 and a supercomputer, you know, yeah, okay, let's (laughs) not do that. Um, But something simple like reversals, so, uh, a typical warm-up I do, and a way to get people into visioning preferred futures is reversing the negative. So list all your worries and fears and everything negative in the world right now that you wish someone would uh, address, which is a, a good psychological catharsis, and then restate them as their logical positive opposites. Yeah. And you end up with this list of, you know critical, really critical looks at the world that that encompass our fears and worries. And then on the flip side, you have these just by a simple semantic function of reverse this statement to its logical positive opposite you get this immediate starter kit of amazing idealistic goals that we can have so that's that's one you know interesting bridge but the other thing i like is the pure form of exploratory reversals which is list all your current assumptions be as specific as possible reverse them so list all your assumptions about what a city is, or a restaurant, or um, what education is, and reverse them. Right. And you'll get a list of kind of fairly odd things, like cities are static and in one place because you know because they have buildings and infrastructure and streets and things. What if we reverse that and cities were nomadic? Right. That was actually an exercise I I ran. Uh, an example I ran several years ago, and and one of the, when people say, well, that could never happen, you sort of go, and so now look at Burning Man and tell me that never happens. Right. But more importantly, literally now, look at the movie Nomad Land and tell me that doesn't happen. Right. So the the notion of how you get people to the weird or how you get, how how you try and figure out how to imagine or, or forecast, to be technical, a black swan or um, as we used to call them a wild card is, is something more like reverse your assumptions, upend your assumptions, invert your assumptions. And then when you have that list of very specific items that are your assumptions inverted, then go back to scanning for emerging change and see if you can find any emerging changes that might contribute to one of those inverted assumptions actually emerging.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the scanning, looking for the signals. And I think, uh, you know, I talk about the, the matrix moments that I've had in my life. And I remember I was in downtown Vancouver. I've been sort of working at the scanning signals, um, doing some presentations and writing for about two and a half years, like pretty focused. And I stood there and I was like, had this like, whoa. It's like, you know, I can see things that you know, you can see things suddenly. The world is, you know, it's peeling back the layers in front of you, seeing, you know, how people are operating, how they're using technology, how buildings are, you know, actually contributing to the sense of place and how transportation interacts with them and the subtleties of the world as well. And and I love the idea of like reversing those assumptions. Again, you know, the actually engineering some inconvenience in your idea of the futures in that reversal of of your own personal, you know, position in society. Society and then your, your organization's position is good you know sitting down with you know a c-suite and saying yeah what if in 20 years your business does not exist because your competitors have moved more quickly and your products have become obsolete because you haven't changed fast enough or you haven't been focused around you know the changes in the world right
0: exactly well um, so Hill and Ayatollah starts off uh, some of his workshops with the uh, what does failure look like What does a failed future look like for your organization or community or your issue, whatever it is, what are the decisions you'd make now that would contribute to that happening? (laughs) Okay, let's not make those decisions. Let's make different decisions, (laughs) essentially. Um, So there are a lot of, I guess, one of the reasons that I find this work endlessly fascinating is because it lets me think systemically, it lets me think creatively, it demands that you think creatively and you think systemically it demands that you think critically. It demands that you think empathetically in terms of looking at other people's perspectives about the world and whatever the issue is. And it kind of uses both sides of your brain and your whole psyche. It's it's um, it has no boundaries. I guess that's why I like it
1: yeah and uh it, it's interesting as i go further and that there's more interesting books coming out every month and i've been able to contribute and i'm writing a book now as well and you know these interviews are like informing you know and an exploration of those ideas and you know I, my my book's going to talk about dystopian futures as an aid to planning but it's actually about you know using them as a as, as a particular um part of the toolkit rather than the absolute part of the toolkit as well but um wendy i mean this conversation has gone into many different directions and we could probably talk for several hours on this in fact you know as i say to to many of my guests that that i've enjoyed talking to you know we need to do another conversation uh so so wendy schultz dr wendy schultz um i'm so glad that we got a chance to speak because we haven't spoken Um, before so I'd like to say thank you so much for your time thank
0: you so much it's lovely to meet you uh, face to face digitally at least and uh, and have this conversation it's great and let this be the first of many I say
1: yeah absolutely and we'll definitely make that happen if people want to learn a little bit more about you Wendy where can they go
0: (laughs) (laughs) sorry okay so I'm like the least I haven't updated my uh, my website in literally decades. I am one of the least published people on the planet. Go to LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn and SlideShare. I usually do post uh, things that I've done more recently. Having said that, the Jigsaw Foresight Initiative is something that I and my colleague, Victoria Ward, are putting a fair amount of work into. And so that's going to have a lot of... Uh, of of these futures tools I've mentioned, um, little short videos that introduce some of the futures tools, chats with people. So we're, yeah, we're trying to build a set of resources for that. So keep an eye on that. The most recent fun thing that I did that is going to be a longer article was the presentation I did for the Global Future Summit called It's Chaos Turtles All the Way Down. And that is on the Global Foresight Summit website. And also I put the the uh, slide deck for it um, up on my SlideShare site.
1: Right, I'm going to go and find all of this and put this in, in the put all the links to these things in the in the description. Uh, Wendy, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll definitely speak again. And when I'm back in the UK, I might have to come and uh, grab a coffee with you in uh, in Oxford as well.
0: Yeah, you should certainly feel free to do that. Yes. OK, great. Provided, of course, we can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Or maybe at a distance and I don't know, you know, four foot long straws or you know listening devices. What,
0: what, might, what might be easier is the, um, uh, the, the folks that run the colleges, uh, the Wolfson Cellar Bar, had the bright idea of basically putting putting the bar out in the harbor quad under sort of marquee TP tent kinds of things and so a beer we could have a socially distanced beer if you come to visit
1: I will absolutely take you off on that Wendy thank you so much for your time and I'll speak to you again soon
0: thank you very much you have a great day
1: okay thanks